This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. There are new episodes released every Thursday. So if you are new to the podcast, just subscribe to keep updated. Now, as English Heritage prepares to recreate the events of the Battle of Hastings at their annual blockbuster reenactment, we're profiling the man who lost his kingdom on that same battlefield in 1066. A man who, if you believe a certain tapestry, was killed by an arrow to the eye. And a man who became the most famous of all Anglo-Saxon kings, despite only ruling for nine months. Joining us now to talk about the life and death of Harold Godwinson and what you can expect to see at this year's event are historian, author and expert on the Middle Ages, Dr Mark Morris. Hello, thanks for having me on. And English Heritage's event manager, Diana Evans. Hello, nice to speak to you. So we'll start off with Mark first before we get on to the reenactment side of things. Mark, we often focus on the events that led to Harold's demise, particularly in battle reenactments. But I wondered if you could take us back to the beginning of his story by telling us where and when Harold Godwinson was born. Ah, well, I wish I could. But you see, the thing is with medieval history, we, we often don't know. Even with kings, we don't know precisely when or where they came from. So we don't know precisely when Harold was born. We know that he's the son of Earl Godwin, as is implied by his surname. And Godwin got married to the sister-in-law of King Canute round about 1019, 1020. And Harold was the second of their many sons. So by sort of a bit of um, guesswork and maths, we can say early 1020s, possibly 1022. So it might well be the thousandth anniversary of Harold's birth this year. As to where he's born, again, we can't, based on guesswork, Godwin himself, the father, the powerful father of of Harold, hailed from Sussex originally. He came from a a family of powerful Sussex thanes. And although we know nothing, virtually nothing about his background until he becomes Earl of Wessex, Sussex was his uh, original base. So possibly 1022, possibly Sussex for Harold's birth, but with the emphasis on possibly. Okay. And did Harold have any brothers or sisters? Oh, lots. It's again, we can't be precise, but I think I think the number we can be certain about is about eight or nine. The sons, there's half a dozen sons. There's an older brother called Swain, and then four younger ones beneath Harold, and I think at least three sisters. One of whom we think the eldest, but again we can't be certain, called Edith, marries King Edward the Confessor, the famous penultimate king of, of Anglo-Saxon England. So um, the Godwinsons or the Godwin sons and the Godwin daughters, they are a large brood. And I suppose people might want to know, what was the father's surname, if that is existed at the time? Because if Harold Godwinson is the son of Godwin, then what is his father called? Is he son of something else? It's a bit tricky. I mean, we it, it's, it's again, sort of proceeding from sort of very scanty evidence. He may be the son of a Sussex thing called Wolfnoth, who uh, was um, causing trouble or sort of going rogue, really, during the disastrous reign of Ethelred the Unready at the sort of turn of the first millennium. So he's probably possibly the son of that guy. But the thing is, with, with, with sticking with Godwin himself, Harold's own father, is although it's often said he comes from obscurity because we don't know much about him, he clearly came from a powerful local family. But he himself becomes super powerful because of his friendship with King Canute. So for those that don't know, 50 years before the Norman conquest, there's an, a less famous conquest, the Danish conquest of England that occurs in 1016 by King Canute. And to put it in the sort of most unsympathetic terms, the Godwins rise, Godwin in particular, because he's very happy to collaborate with Knut. So the, the Godwins rise because they are, in the first instance, Danish collaborators. And Knut sees qualities in Godwin, which means he elevates Godwin to basically be his right-hand man or even his deputy in England, because, of course, Knut has a, a Scandinavian empire he has to tend to. So he's not in England much of the time during his 19-year reign. So Godwin is his man on the ground and as such becomes incredibly powerful. I mean, he, he's given Earl of Wessex. People might think, well, that's just the southwest of England. But Wessex extends all the way from Cornwall to Kent. You know, it's everything south of the Thames, really. So he's the number one Earl in England, Godwin. So he goes from being relatively powerful to all powerful, massively powerful, a sort of deputy king, if you like. 
And that's a good family to be born into if you want to be king yourself. Well, that's that's Godwin's ambition, we think. I mean, you know, Godwin has this power. Godwin lives to be a, quite an old man. He, he, he struggles until 1053. And his ambition during the time he's in power is clearly he's steering his family towards the ultimate power, which is to replace, well, in the first instance, the sons of Knut and eventually Edward the Confessor. The succession to the English throne becomes very complicated at this point, but clearly the Godwins have their eye on power from quite an early date. It's not, it's, I, th- I think to my mind at least, it's not just Harold Godwinson doesn't pop into his head for the first time in January 1066 and he says, who, me? Oh, go on then, I guess, you know. The Godwins have been tilting at this prize for a good three decades prior to 1066. So let's get into that a bit more. How is the family set up then to be this powerful family? The crucial thing is royal patronage, is having the ear of King Canute. So he's, he's, Godwin is a creation of Canute. And as to why Canute likes him so much, and this is crucial actually to the entire story of both of the entire Godwin family, is very late in the day in the 1060s, either just before or just after the conquest, the sister who I mentioned earlier, Edith, Godwin's daughter, who marries Edward the Confessor, so she's Queen of England from 1045. She commissions a tract called, it's later known as the Life of King Edward, because the later parts of it are about her late husband and his sanctity. But what it really is, is it's a a tract in praise of the Godwin family. So it starts off with who was Godwin and why was he so great? So everything we're told about Godwin is he was the most learned in council and he was the most proficient in war. And this is why Knut took a shine to him and he trusted him as his trusted counsellor. And he kind of is like the sort of the father figure to the whole nation is the way he's presented. And then when Godwin eventually sort of shuffles off, Harold steps into his place and we're told Harold is, if you thought Godwin was great, gosh, wait till we tell you about Harold. And Harold is just this most amazing kind of friend to all his people and his race. He is just absolutely a superman. So the way that we perceive these men, Godwin, Harold, and to some extent, even his younger brothers as well, they are superheroes in the eyes of this particular chronicler, because this paid pen has been commissioned to write a tract, as I say, in praise of the Godwin family, almost certainly to justify what they were ultimately aiming to do, which was to take power, you know, for themselves. So how did they achieve power? Well, by sort of the conventional route of sort of getting on well with the king, being given military command, being successful in war, good at bashing people. But ultimately, it comes from they have huge amounts of land, which means they have huge amounts of rents and huge amounts of revenues. Another way they're told that there's a sort of sideline for the Godwinsons was the slave trade. They're sort of, we're told, particularly Godwin's wife. So this is Harold's mum, Githa or Gutha. She was um, rounding up good-looking young people, men and women, to sell them to the Scandinavian market because Scandinavia still had a flourishing slave trade, as did England prior to the Norman conquest. So they have lots of ways that they can make money, but the crucial thing is sort of land and, and wealth, and that's how they rise to prominence. Very interesting. Just quickly on that slave trade idea, are we talking about uh, Northern European slaves? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about slavery was kind of entirely normal condition in England and indeed England, Ireland, Scotland, Scandinavia prior to 1066. What's interesting is it's, it was that was true all over Northern Europe in earlier centuries. But in Francia, and even in Normandy, which has started its life as a Viking colony, slavery starts to die out around the turn of the first millennium. But it hasn't in England prior to the conquest. And as far as we can determine from the most valuable source in this regard is Doomsday Book. In Doomsday in 1086, at least 10% of the population are slaves. And then 50 years earlier, prior to the conquest, it may have been as much as a quarter of the population were slaves. So, so yeah, slavery is a common condition for the people on the lowest rungs of society in pre-conquest England and, and pre-conquest Britain and Ireland. And it's something, therefore, that is kind of the rich who are able to sort of seize slaves, sell slaves, participate in. And the Godwins, as we're told by uh, post-conquest sources, were prime exponents of this trade. So that uh, gives us a good sense of how rich and powerful they are as a family. Just before we talk about Harold himself then, um, what else about the Godwinsons generated their wealth? Is, is there anything else that you haven't touched on? I don't know. I, I, 
the, the, the thing sort of true throughout the ages, you know, in terms of the, the powerful in this period is they are, you know, skillful in war is one very good way to kind of command the respect and the trust of a king. But I think so the crucial thing with, with Godwin is, whereas for generations, you have to remember, prior to 1016, the Vikings, the Danes, the Scandinavians, whatever you, whatever you choose to call them, they had been enemy number one for the Old English, the Anglo-Saxons. So ever since sort of the late 8th century, and especially in the 9th, you know, you think of kings like King Alfred towards the end of the 9th century, they are battling the Danes, and they are the sort of the great enemy of the House of Wessex, which later becomes the Royal House of England. And you get to a tipping point in the early 11th century during the reign of Ethelred the Unready, where the Danish onslaught is so irresistible that certain people start thinking, well, perhaps we'd be just be better if we switch sides. And we had one of these guys as king because they clearly keep defeating us in battle. But that requires quite a mental shift on the part of people doing that. And the Godwins, as I say, are they are Godwin himself and his supporters and friends and family are the people who are quite happy to say, well, we've got a Danish king now and let's make the best of it. You know, this has happened. And so conquerors like Knut need people like that. They don't want to be kind of constantly sort of dealing with rebellious people trying to overthrow them. So... I say the Godwins do well because they are, it pains me to say it, Danish collaborators. Yes. So we've covered quite well, I think, now the background of the Godwins. I'm calling them the Godwins, the Godwin and his offspring. But so, yes, we've certainly covered the father side of things. And the fact, obviously, that he was regent as well, an earl of Wessex, that gives him an enormous amount of power. But looking at Harold and how he built up his own power within the family, can you describe what experience and titles Harold managed to generate through his connections through his father before he went on to eventually become king? The first title that Harold is accorded is in 1045, when he's in his early 20s, and he's made Earl of East Anglia. And and we perhaps should clarify what Earl means in this period, because it basically means regional governor. And there are no other titles apart from Earl. People imagine because of the later Middle Ages, these titles multiply and you have, you know, Marquis, Duke, Earl, etc. But there was always this rich panoply. But in fact, Earl is the only pre-conquest title that has any meaning. And it, mean, it means you're in charge of a huge area. So you're Earl of Wessex, Earl of East Anglia, you know, Earl of Northumbria, Earl of Mercia, that sort of thing. So you're, you're given a huge amount of, of regional control. So that's him from his early 20s. That's Harold, our man. As to how he's able to get it, well, it's not down to his own personal qualities at that point. He's a, he's a you know young, strapping 20-something. But it's because his father is in charge. I mean, the, the essential background for the years from 1042 to 1066, the long reign of Edward the Confessor, is Edward the Confessor is, to a large extent, under Godwin's thumb. He comes to England from exile in Normandy in 1041. And when he succeeds in 1042, really Godwin is the power behind the throne. And Edward really resents that. And this is kind of one of the sort of the dominant themes of the life of King Edward. It's the story of the first half is the mounting tension between Godwin, who's the kingmaker, and Edward, this king with few friends, but building in confidence and building his contacts within England, within the English aristocracy where it gets to a point where in 1051 the gloves come off and Godwin and Edward have a massive falling out, which is the great sort of turning point in this, in one, one of the great turning points in the story of the Godwin family, is they are all sent into exile. There's a standoff, a military standoff. Godwin realises as power is ebbing away from him and people are deserting to the king's side that he can't win in a physical fight. So he runs away with some of his sons and his wife to Flanders, and Harold and one of his younger brothers, I think it's Leofwine, they flee to Ireland. So there comes this great crisis in the middle of Edward the Confessor's reign when the Godwins are banished, apparently for good. But as you probably know, they regroup and return the following year, 1052, and put Edward firmly back in his box. And from that point on, in the opinion of, I think most historians, Edward has virtually no power at all. He's a, a Godwinson puppet who's doing as he's told from that point on. And the crucial thing, of course, is that Edward never has any children, whereas Harold is surrounded by siblings. Yes, absolutely. And that's, of course, one of the frustrating things is with all this is our sources are incredibly biased, as I've already said, with the life of King Edward. It's, it's the Godwin family's version of events. 
We have other sources like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but they can be very, very, very taciturn, like one or two lines for a crucial year. So, you know, it's, it's hard to discern precisely what the cause of all this contention was. But in the case of the great row of 1051-1052, one of the very plausible reasons is precisely because Edward doesn't have any kids. Because remember, Edward is married to Godwin's eldest daughter, Edith. And if they have children, then presumably Godwin is going to be okay with that. Godwin, therefore, has little grandchildren running around who will one day be king. Or grandsons, he hopes. But Edward's kind of plausible revenge for having to sort of put up with in-laws he doesn't really like is to say, well, I'm not going to have any kids. You know, it's very, very simple. So he does, for whatever reason, whether it's infertility or whether it's kind of willfully refusing to satisfy Godwin's plan, no children are forthcoming after six years of marriage. And so, again, it's debatable, but it's plausible. And it's certainly what the Normans later claim, that Edward, around about that very same point with the row with the Godwins, said, do you know who I would like to be king? I would like to be succeeded by my cousin William, who I, I, you know, I knew when I was growing up in Norman exile. So this goes down very, very badly in England and very, very badly in particular with the Godwins. So this is one of the plausible reasons why push comes to shove in 1051 is because What's really at stake is the succession to the childless Edward the Confessor, who is going to succeed him. And that question never goes away for the next 15, 16 years, right down to Edward's death. So are you one of those historians who subscribes to the fact that Edward the Confessor did in fact suggest in passing or tell William directly that, yes, I'd like you to be king after me, please, just to spite the uh, Godwinson clan, well, or the Godwin I, clan. I think that, you know, there is no direct evidence. That's the first thing to, to emphasise. But I think all the sort of tangential evidence points in that direction. Because, I mean, if I just rattle some things off that we haven't mentioned, I mean, it's clear that Edward must really, really hate Godwin. There's all this stuff in the life of King Edward about, oh, yeah, how they buried the hatchet and kissed and made up after Edward's succession. But Godwin is responsible for the death of Edward's older brother, Alfred, okay, another potential claimant to the throne in the 1030s. And Godwin has him seized, has his followers mutilated and has him sent to some place in the fens where he eventually gets bumped off. So it's kind of like, well, are you going to forgive your brother's murder? It's clearly that that rankles. And that's one of the kind of dominant things, even in the life of King Edward, a Godwin source, is that Edward was really, really rancorous about the murder of his older brother, uh, younger brother. That's real Game of Thrones stuff, isn't it? Because this is something that most people wouldn't know. No, well, yeah, that's why they need to go out and buy books on the Norman Conquest by, <laughs> you know, the popular authors. But um, yeah, there's real bad blood between the two of them. And by contrast, Edward has spent quarter of a century, 25 years, from his early teens until his early 40s, he has been in Normandy. And so he has been raised in the household of the Norman Dukes. The Norman Dukes have, on two occasions tried to sponsor, given him ships and soldiers and the, the resources to try and invade and conquer England, to try and reclaim his ancestral throne. These came to nothing, but nevertheless, they have given him the backing. So if Edward feels a debt of gratitude to anybody, it is to his Norman relatives. And so and the last part of the jigsaw, or one of the other major pieces of the jigsaw there is when the Godwins are fleeing to exile in 1051, so Godwin to Flanders, uh, his, some of his sons to Ireland, when they are absent, who appears in England, according to the, the sort of the relatively neutral Anglo-Saxon chronicle, we're told Earl William, Duke William of Normandy, came to England and had a chat with Edward the Confessor. Now, hugely frustratingly, we're not told what they talk about, but it's very significant that as the Godwins seem to have been banished, seem to have been gone for good, at that very moment, William makes a special trip from Normandy to England to have a chat with his cousin Edward. They're talking about some anti-Godwin strategy, perhaps. They're talking about ways to collaborate. But what's the th one thing that Edward, the childless Edward, can dangle as bait for William? It's like, one day, all this will be yours. So no conclusive evidence. But I think everything stacked up. The conventional story of... Edward and Godwin really not getting on, and Edward actually being very much a, a fan of his Norman relatives. That seems to me still a very compelling argument. 
Yes, it's a very compelling story as well. I mean, my creative brain is just going into overdrive here. This should be a screenplay straight away. Well, uh, I, I think you're not the first person to propose that. The problem <laughs> is, I think, for, historically, it's perhaps not so much the case now with um, all the streaming services producing dramas that are global in their reach. But the problem historically, I think, with um, the story of 1066 is the English or the Anglo-Saxons or whatever, however you choose to describe them, they do end up losing. You know, the people speaking English lose, at least, and the people speaking French win. There have well, been it, French dramas it may... about it. You won't be surprised to hear. There have been dramas produced in Francophone countries that think this is a really fantastic story. It is. I think it, even yeah. if you lose, I think it's still a great story. Um, well, because it's watch this of, face. I think it's almost certain, to be a, uh, it's almost certain to be a kind of a TV treatment at some point in the coming years. Yes, and that international flavour is an interesting point within this story because we've got... The connection between Edward the Confessor, the king, and his cousin, William, Duke of Normandy, who will fight Harold on the battlefield at the Battle of Hastings. But Harold also had international diplomacy experience, didn't he? Can you tell us about that? There's a little bit. I mean, I think, again, the life of King Edward talks about how Harold, you know, had all these kind of international contacts and was kind of, you know, respected all over Europe. And and, and we can see some of that is borne out by other evidence. So, for instance, there's, I think, a solitary charter that places Harold in Flanders in 1056. And the life of King Edward insists that Harold had gone to Rome, which would have almost certainly just been a, a pilgrimage. And possibly, therefore, the Flanders Charter catches him on that journey. But we're told he he had contacts or, you know, he had diplomatic links with kind of princes all along the sort of the the opposite side of the channel. But the most famous of all Harold's sort of international adventures, of course, is the one that features on the Biotapestry. This is where the Biotapestry begins. People often say, well, the Biotapestry is the story of the Norman invasion of England. Well, or the Norman Conquest. The Norman Conquest doesn't really kick in until about halfway, two thirds of the way through. What the Bayer Tapestry really is, is the story of Harold Godwinson. It begins with Harold Godwinson having a chat with Edward the Confessor, and then it's Harold Godwinson going down to Bosham in Sussex and sailing across the sea to Normandy. And of course, scrolling all the way to the end of the tapestry, it ends with Harold's death, which we'll, we'll eventually get to. But the Bayer Tapestry is the story of Harold Godwinson. It begins with the story of how he went to Normandy for reasons undisclosed to have a chat with William, Duke of Normandy. Mm. And did Harold wield much influence abroad or within Great Britain himself? Because obviously you've described the Godwin family, the Godwin clan, whilst powerful, were sort of squeezed a bit by the King Edward the Confessor. Well, I think the Godwins, I mean, this is the thing, we should actually backtrack a bit before we get to Normandy. You're right. So what happens is once they return in 1052... So in the 1040s, Godwin is Earl of Wessex, Harold is Earl of East Anglia, his older brother Svein, who predeceases both of them in 1052, he's got an earldom in the West Midlands. But they are balanced by other earls, so they're the earls of Mercia in the Midlands, obviously, and the earls of Northumbria in the north. What happens is once the Godwins come back in force, forcefully in 1052, and as I say, Edward the Confessor is really reduced to a rubber stamp, I think, from that point on is the Godwins take over more or less everything. So in 1055, there's another brother, Tostig Godwinson, who becomes Earl of Northumbria. When Godwin himself, the great paterfamilias, dies in 1053, he is replaced as Earl of Wessex by Harold. So Harold steps, literally steps into his father's shoes of Earl of Wessex. And who gets the Earldom of East Anglia? Well, in the first instance, it's um, a son of the Earl of Mercia. But ultimately what happens is as those people die off, the other earls, they are replaced with other Godwinsons. And you get to a situation by the early 1060s where there are four, four Godwin brothers who have English earldoms. And the only other English earldom is the earldom of Mercia, who therefore the the young Earl of Mercia feels very encircled. So it's almost a one-party state by the time you get to the 1060s. The Godwinson takeover is almost complete. And they have, in terms of you know, other successes you mentioned in Britain, there are sort of border disputes, more than more than border disputes. There are, there's an ongoing war with the King of Wales, as he, we think he styles himself, Griffith at Llewellyn. And Harold um, invades Wales in the early 1060s, along with Tostig, and Griffith is killed by his own men. Harold triumphantly sends Griffith's head 
back to Edward the Confessor in Westminster. So he's, in a sense, conqueror of Wales, Harold. So he's, in terms of Britain, and certainly in terms of England, the Godwin family is really all-powerful, certainly unchallengeable. And Harold is its new chief. You know, Harold is the man in charge. And I think that's why, I mean, scrolling ahead a bit or, or back to his trip to Normandy, which is probably 1064, I think that's why he goes to Normandy in a confident spirit, because I think he's confident that he can sort this one out because he's Harold and he's now a man in his early 40s and he has all this power and he has all this experience. And I think he thinks he can settle the succession dispute that's been brewing away in the background for the past dozen years. Mm. Now, can you tell us about how Harold worked with the church? The thing that people normally say about kind of powerful secular rulers is they demonstrate conventional piety, i.e. there's no evidence in Harold's career for him to have been excessively religious in the way that, we're, for example, we're told that Edward the Confessor was. Edward the Confessor, we're told, believed that he could cure people by laying hands on them, that he was really, really pious. He founded, refounded Westminster Abbey. He liked nothing better than to converse with monks. You know, it, the life of King Edward lays it on with a trowel of just how religious this man was. There's no comparable praise for Harold in that regard. We know Harold got on well with leading churchmen, senior churchmen, and indeed it was in the interest of senior churchmen to get on well with Harold because he's the most powerful man in the kingdom. So if you want to get something done, who are you going to talk to? Go and have a word with Harold. So he's friends with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, in fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury is really a Godwin appointee in 1053. The Archbishop of York, similarly, is, is, is apparently good friends with Harold. So he, Harold gets on well with churchmen. In terms of his own faith, I don't think we can say there's anything particularly exceptional there. He does found a new or refound a church which becomes um, a college of secular canons at Waltham. It's either in Essex or Hertfordshire. It's right on the border. I think it's in Essex, Waltham Abbey. So, yes, he's, I say Harold is, is conventionally religious, but gets on very well with the most powerful churchman in the realm, which is, of course, to his advantage. Going back to what happened in Normandy when Harold arrives, and this is described or portrayed in the bio-tapestry, what did Harold do? Well, aha, this is where it becomes very contentious, because, of course, the tapestry tells one Norman version of events, and the English sources say nothing at all about his trip to Normandy. It's complete radio silence from our English sources. At least pre-conquest ones, there is a post-conquest English version of what happened in Normandy by a monk called Eadmer of Canterbury, who tells a, a similar but slightly different story. The real question is, why did he go? And the answers range from the kind of ludicrous post-conquest, like, oh, he went fishing and got blown off course to Normandy, you know, blown 60 miles across the channel. I think the most plausible reason for Harold going to Normandy is William, since 1051-1052, has two junior members of the Godwin clan, two of Harold's kinsmen, a younger brother called Wolfnoth and a nephew called Hakon, Hakon. He has them as hostages in Normandy. Again, pushing the boat out a little further than is, is, is ideal, perhaps as guarantees as William's right to succeed one day. But for whatever reason, these young men are being held hostage for many years, a dozen years or more, in Normandy. And Harold, I think, with one eye on the prize, thinking, well, if I take the throne, my kinsmen are in jeopardy. Harold goes to try and retrieve those men, goes to try and bargain with William. And although they, the bio-tapestry and indeed the other sources show them getting on very well, very chivalrously almost, you know, on the cusp of the age of chivalry, on the tapestry, Harold receives armour from William as some kind of knighting ceremony. They go on campaign together. Harold behaves heroically and rescues some of William's knights from the quicksands as they pass Mont Saint-Michel. So they seem to be getting on very well until the twist at the end of it is... Again, the tapestry has very few words, so we're left to interpret the pictures. But what seems to happen is William then says, and of course, when Edward dies, you will back me as king, right? And in the tapestry, Harold is famously shown swearing oaths on holy relics before William, just before he gets on the boat. Again, as the written sources tell us, to support William's claim to the throne. So the most plausible reading of the story, I think, is that Harold goes with his own agenda and the tables are turned on him by William and he is made to utter promises that he either can't keep or has no intention of keeping. Because we know what happens, to sort of scroll to the end of the story, is that Edward the Confessor quickly does become unwell a year or so after Harold's return. 
fatally unwell. He dies in early January 1066, and the very next day, Harold is crowned as his replacement. So Harold, finally, the Godwin ambition of having a Godwin sitting on the throne, that is fulfilled finally on the 6th of January 1066 with Harold's coronation. And when news of that eventually reaches the cha- across the channel a few days later, William is far from happy. This is really, really getting quite interesting because Harold has got what he wants at this point. He's got the crown because Edward has died. He's built on the legacy which was created by his father. And yet he has a battle now on two fronts. He's got to defend England, but he's already almost conceded, according to the Bayer Tapestry, he's already conceded the crown to William. So... Only one thing can happen next, and that's the Battle of Hastings, really. Well, this is the thing. I mean, Harold is presumably banking on the idea that having met William, that he's not going to go through with it, or that if he is going to go through with it, it's going to come to nothing. Because, obviously, invading England from Normandy is no light matter. And he may have, have, on his visit to Normandy, although he might have felt compelled or, or tricked into swearing oaths that he thought were taken under duress, he may have thought, well, you know, the, these guys are, are no match for me. You know, he remember, William is Duke of Normandy. Normandy is a province of Francia. Harold is King of England. England is a very large, powerful state. He, can see, he has a, a very impressive naval resources at his command, whereas the Normans really don't seem to have that. Although they've begun their careers as Vikings, by 1066, the Normans are much more about mounted cavalry in terms of the way they do war, which Harold has seen firsthand. And he may have thought, I mean, he goes on a campaign with William to Brittany and it's not hugely successful. So, you know, Harold must, I think, must be thinking, well, if I take this, if I take the crown, with the consent, it has to be said, of the majority of English people stood around him, perhaps not with the blessing of Edward the Confessor, but, you know, he's, he's despite what any of the sources may say later, he's dead. You know, what, what, he's, what he wanted is no longer relevant. But Harold clearly has enough people stood around in that chamber at Westminster and enough powerful people to say, fair enough, it's your turn in the big chair. So he may just kind of think, well, is, this is just a Duke of Normandy. You know, I mean, what's he going to do? <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll get to that. But um, isn't there a bit of a hoo-ha about whether Harold actually was properly appointed the, the next king via Edward the, the Confessor? There's debate, put it that way. I mean, because we have... Even the life of King Edward is a little bit mealy-mouthed about it. It says um, Edward, in direct speech, reaches out and touches Harold's hands and says, you know, I, I'm appointing you governor of this kingdom and this lady. And it's much more about look after your sister, my queen, once I'm gone, treat her like this. She, of course, is the person who commissions this tract. So, of course, it's much more about the bereaved queen than the country that he leaves behind. Now, whether that amounts to you should be king or not is debatable. One version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that is absolutely explicit, you know, that he was given the crown and he was elected to it. Men said he should do it. So there is a range of chronicle opinion as to whether it was a coup which is what one later writer ultimately says, or whether it was entirely above board. I think what cannot be denied is the fact that Harold was a popular candidate. One thing that we haven't mentioned at all, because as you say, the politics are so complicated, is lots of people in England have been fishing around for a legitimate candidate for 15 years or so, and they had found a long-lost cousin of Edward the Confessor in Hungary, He'd been in exile for 50 years and they bring him back. He dies immediately that he arrives in England in very suspicious circumstances. But he has a son, this is Edward's great nephew, called Edgar the Etheling, Edward Prince Edgar, effectively. So he's the kind of continuity candidate. If, you're, if you think that the crown ought to go to a member of the House of Wessex, it been you know, ruling England and Wessex for hundreds of years, then he's your guy. The problem is he's only 12 or 13. And England looks very vulnerable to international invaders at this point. So I think the majority of people by this date kind of think the House of Wessex, this old royal house, has had its day, really. And the Godwinsons are the people to take over. They are charismatic, successful in war, successful in diplomacy, all the things that the life of King Edward assures us that they are, because it's been, it seems to be propaganda to justify this moment, a moment of dynastic takeover. 
So I think Harold, I think there's no doubt, and I wouldn't argue with the idea that Harold is a very popular candidate, but even popular candidates, if they're only the king's brother-in-law, what can, what can Harold say to justify why he should be king other than I'm really great? He has no blood claim to the throne. So you have to stress just how many people wanted you to do it. And there were other claimants to the throne as well, weren't there? Harold's own brother, who formed an alliance over the North Sea. Yeah, well, this is something that I think, you know, when sometimes when you see popular dramas on this or popular books on it, they sort of imagine that kind of like as soon as Edward the Confessor dies, this was all out in the open and declared. So we have three or four contenders. I think this kind of developed as 1066 wore on. So I think what happens is Edward dies at the start of the year. Harold is crowned the very next day and he thinks he's in for a rough ride. But what he's principally worried about is William, because William is kind of the person who's said this out loud for many years that England should be his by right and so he's worried about the threat from Normandy but you're right his younger brother Tostig who I mentioned earlier Tostig had been sent into exile in 1065 there had been a rebellion raised in Northumbria against him and to avoid civil war largely with with Harold say so Tostig is banished to Flanders and the first person to throw their hat into the ring in 1066 is Tostig who invades with a sort of in the first instance fairly rubbish invasion fleet and is seen off quite early on in the spring. And it's very unclear. You say uh, he had a rival in the shape of his brother. Well, Tostig never sets out a manifesto. We're not sure whether Tostig is tilting at the crown or he just wants his earldom back. So it could just be that he's trying to pull off what their father had done 15 years earlier when he successfully forced his way back in to his earldom. But having been seen off once, Tostig then reappears in the early autumn late August, early September, with the King of Norway, Harold Hardrada, who is one of the most fierce and fearsome men in contemporary Europe. He's this kind of old school Viking warrior with a slew of victories behind him. And I don't think, I don't think the sources at least, suggest that there was any thought that that was going to happen. I think what if you, if you look at what's going on in England, for the first six or seven months of 1066, Harold is concentrating all his defences on the south coast. He has his army out for months in the summer of 1066, waiting for, expecting invasion from Normandy. By the time you get to early September, he has to dismiss that army. We're told he can't keep it together any longer. The men were out of provisions. And then just days later, within 48, 72 hours, he is informed that his brother has invaded Yorkshire with a huge Viking army and the King of Norway. And it seems to completely blindside him because he's just dismissed his army. So yes, this is the one of the great twists in 1066 is it, it seemed to be a two-way fight. And all of a sudden, Harold realises it's a three-way fight. Yes. So this is what heralds the Battle of Stamford Bridge, I understand. Yes, there's a lesser battle a few days before, five days before, at Fulford, just outside of York, which is when the Northern Earls, so the Earls of Mercia and the Earls of Northumbria, brothers called Edwin and Morcar, they square up to the invaders, Haudrada and Tostig, and they lose. They don't lose their lives, lots of other people lose their lives, but they flee. And so it seems the first round goes to Harold Hardrada. I'm going to call him Hardrada from this point on to avoid confusion, so Hardrada and uh, Tostig. And They've taken York, they've taken the North, and they are busy taking the oaths of loyalty from local bigwigs to sort of ready for their march south. But what happens is, and this is one of Harold Godwinson's great triumphs, is having had no army at all, having let his men go on the 8th of September, he summons them back very quickly and rushes north. And when he's a few miles away, about 15, 20 miles away at Tadcaster, he discovers to his astonishment that his brother and Hardrada, the Norwegians, they're not in York anymore. They have gone to a place called Stamford Bridge to take local oaths of loyalty. And even better, according to two separate chronicles, because it's a hot day, they haven't worn their armour. So Harold immediately says, right, and he marches his men at dawn all the way through York out to Stamford Bridge and he falls upon them unsuspectedly. And a great battle ensues and it is a very bloody battle we're told that the rivers ooze and humber were dyed red with viking gore but very bloody battle on both sides but ultimately both of um, harold's opponents his brother tostig and harold hardrada so one of the most fearsome men in in 11th century europe they are both dead by the end of the day that's a great victory for harold albeit that his own brother has been killed 
So I think from that point on, people must have been have thought in England, we've backed the right horse. You know, if this man can defeat Harold Hardrada, for heaven's sake, clearly we were right to make him king nine months ago. He is absolutely the best man for the job. Yes. And so following the Battle of Stamford Bridge, Harold and his army head south to face William at the Battle of Hastings. It's interesting, of course, it's called the Battle of Hastings, but it really it's the battle near Hastings. When and where did this actually take place? It takes place. So the Battle of Stamford Bridge was 25th of September. And just to sort of you know pile on the drama, two days later, 27th of September, is when the wind changes in Normandy or Flanders or wherever William has ended up. And that's when they set sail from the estuary of the Seine. And so they land in England, the Normans, on about the 28th of September, just three days after the Battle of Stamford Bridge. So some days after that, three or four days, however long it takes a man to gallop, you know, or a relay of horses to gallop, Harold is told, sorry to interrupt your celebrations, but the Normans have just landed. You know, it's it's a terrible worst case scenario. So he has to rush south to confront this new threat in the form of William and his Norman army. And the battle, to answer your question finally, the battle takes place on the 14th of October, 1066. And it's at a place that at the time in 1066, it didn't have a particular name. I mean, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says they met at the Grey Oak Tree, which might have been a landmark in Sussex at the time near Hastings, which is no longer there now. It becomes known subsequently, of course, as battle. Of course. Now, how closely fought was the Battle of Hastings? We've done a a long podcast on this uh, last year in quite a lot of detail. But uh, if you could just sort of remind us what sort of affair it was. Well, it's two things. To answer your question, first of all, clearly very closely fought because it goes on all day. It goes on from about roughly nine in the morning until we're told the sun was setting. So mid-October, say five o'clock, you know, it goes on for hours and hours and hours. It's not continuous. It can't have been, but it's kind of like they're engaging, disengaging, re-engaging throughout the day, trying to smash through each other's lines, trying to inflict a mortal blow. So that suggests... It was very close for that the two sides were very evenly matched. But what's really interesting about it, and this struck contemporaries, contemporaries, one at least, said it was a very unusual battle because the Normans had become masters of the cavalry charge. They, of course, had thousands and thousands of infantry as well. But what they had that the English really didn't do, at least at Hastings, was a mass cavalry charge. And what the English preferred to do was take their stand on the higher ground that they commanded and form their famous shield wall. So they basically stand still and and say, you know, you shall not pass like Monty Python's Black Knight. And the Normans kind of try everything to punch through. They sort of, first of all, they send in, you know, they soften them up with archers or try to soften them up with archers. Then they send in the, the foot and then the cavalry have a go and they keep trying with these different lines of attack and are unable to break through. So that struck contemporaries as very odd. Not only was it long drawn out and arduous, but they were fighting with two very different techniques. One with all the motion on their side, the Normans, the others standing still like a wall. And the Normans also had this famous dirty trick, didn't they? Didn't they pretend to retreat at one stage? And that's what... Well, again, it won't surprise you sort of (laughs) however long we are into this interview to discover that the jury is out on that. The two versions are, it was a trick or... It was a disaster that they turned to their advantage, or a near disaster they turned to their advantage. So is it? did they deliberately run away? Did they run away because they were scared? Or did they run away to try and lure the English down the hill? And you can, I do in my book, you know, you argue that all kinds of different ways. I think there was a moment of near disaster for the Normans, because the principal source for the Normans, William the Conqueror's biographer, William of Poitiers, ties himself in such logical knots trying to explain what went on. And of course, he doesn't ever want to say the Normans did a runner, the Normans bottled it and ran back down the hill because that would make them look cowardly. But then he starts saying, but even, you know, even the Romans, if they thought that their general had been killed, they would retreat and they would run away. So he starts lodging kind of caveats and evidence. So I think it's pretty clear that something at one stage, the Normans thought that William had been killed. And there's a famous scene on the Biotapestry, again, it's described in written sources as well, of William taking off his helmet, which of course concealed his identity to some extent, taking off his helmet so his men could see him and riding amongst his men saying, look, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm still alive, and rallying them to regroup. So I think at once, at some stage, the English in 1066 
felt as they did in 1966. They felt they think it's all over. And they sort of rushed onto the pitch, you know. And the Normans kind of said, no, it's not. You know, there's still plenty of extra time to play. Wheeled round. And then once they had, the English had rushed down the hill, of course, the shield wall, which was their guarantee of success, that had been compromised. There were now gaps in it that the Normans could ride between and pick off the English in small groups. So from that stage on, the Normans feel that they're in with a chance. So would you say that that is the point in the Battle of Hastings where Harold's fate is is sealed because he doesn't have that strong shield wall? It's virtually disintegrated. You see, here's the thing. No, I wouldn't because Harold's fate isn't sealed until Harold himself is dead. That's the crucial thing. Harold could have looked at that and thought, right, well, I've lost this one, but, you know, it's just one battle. He could have retreated and he would have still been king and he would have still been popular and he could have still rallied men to his cause, you know. And you see that going on. I mean, you see that going on a lot in the reign of um, Ethelred the Unready, that kings lose battles and then, then the Danes win a battle, or the Danes win another battle, then they get beaten again. So Harold could have just looked at that field at that point and said, do you know what? I think the game's up and just slunk off into the night, into the woods and been put on a fast horse back to London and, and had another go. What ultimately decides the battle, of course, is Harold doesn't leave the battlefield. Harold dies on the battlefield. And of course, from William's point of view, that's crucial. William can't settle for a, a score draw. William can't settle for, well, we, we did well on points because this is a succession dispute. This is about who should wear the crown. So he has to make sure that Harold dies on that field. And one of the earliest written sources, the Song of the Battle of Hastings, tells us that William put together a dedicated death squad precisely to hunt down Harold and make sure he did die. So that may come as a disappointment. I can anticipate your next question, which is, did he die with an arrow in the eye as per the tapestry or as the tapestry seems to depict? And the answer is, again, regrettably, we don't know. There were thousands, tens of thousands arrows unleashed that day, any one of which may have fatally struck Harold. But our earliest written source, which I have to say is a poem, it's not dry reportage, it's a poem, but that says he was deliberately hacked to death by a group of Norman knights and makes no mention whatsoever of an arrow. So the one thing, though, that we can absolutely certainly agree on is that Harold didn't escape the battlefield and died that day, 14th of October, 1066. Yes. And I suppose the last question for you then, Mark, to wrap up this massive massively complicated story but you've done a really good job of explaining it what did the sources say that happened to harold's body again there is dispute the later ones let's deal with those first the late of the famous one is that harold had more than one wife harold had the lady had been sort of married to at least in the sort of the common law sense for many many years the father of all his children was called edith swanneck he'd had another wife he'd married at the start of 1066 also called edith but um, his long-term partner, shall we say, she, we're told, mournfully sort of combed the battlefield to try and find his body and was able to identify only by certain marks that were known to her. So these are bits of Harold's body that other people didn't get to see. So presumably tattoos or something on his body that she could say, that's Harold. And the implication there, of course, is that you couldn't tell him by his face because he'd been too hacked about in his death. So he could only be identified. They said, yes, and so she can identify him. The problem with that story is it's not told until nearly 100 years after his death. And so it has the sounds like a kind of a story that's been improved much over the decades. The closest contemporary sources, both the Song of the Battle of Hastings and William Poitier, who's writing within about five years of the battle, they say that Harold was buried close to the shore in Sussex, sort of under a, not entirely anonymous grave, but a sort of a, certainly not a Christian burial. I'm inclined to go with that, not just because it's more closely contemporary, but because William of Poitiers is all about praising his patron, William the Conqueror, to the skies. You know, he's just the greatest ruler in the world. He's so chivalrous. He's so benign. He's so merciful. And I think had William said, of course, you must take my noble opponent and bury him at Waltham Abbey. William of Poitiers would have obsequiously told us that this showed how charitable he was and how merciful and how generous that even his fallen opponent, he you know, gave this dignified burial. And that's not what William of Poitiers says. William of Poitiers says he was buried under a mound near the coast, serves him right kind of thing. So I think William of Poitiers is probably the one to go for there, even though a lot of time you can catch William of Poitiers telling great big whoppers. I don't, th- I don't have any reason to believe he's lying there. 
So there's no, you don't think there's any truth that he was buried at Waltham Abbey? Well, the thing about Waltham Abbey is, as I say, that story doesn't originate until a hundred years after Harold's death. And the monks of Waltham, well, the monks, they were canons before the conquest. As I said earlier, at some point in the interview, this was Harold's own foundation. So they had sort of a vested interest in sort of, you know, the cult of Harold. Interestingly, though, about 50 years after that story, another monk writing at what was then Waltham Abbey says Harold didn't die at Hastings. He escaped and went to live as a hermit in Chester or Cheshire and then lived a a ripe old life and only told a few people that he was secretly Harold and then came back to Waltham and was buried there having died an, an old man. So clearly that story is a nonsense. And so they were quite good at spinning stories of what happened to old King Harold, you know, 100, 150 years ago at Waltham Abbey to tell to the tourists. And as I said, the contemporary sources, they make no mention of this whatsoever. So in 2022, if a history buff wanted to sort of do a, a Battle of Hastings type tour, taking in various locations, and they wanted to find out exactly where Harold's resting place is, we can't actually say where that is. I, I don't think we can say for certain. I think, you know, that the Waltham is the traditional story, but I, I think um, we just can't say where Harold ended up. I wish we could. It'd be great. Wouldn't it be a, the best? It would sort of kick Richard III into a cocked hat, wouldn't it, if we could find Absolutely. where Harold Godwinson was buried? <laughs> yeah. If we could find a skull with an arrowhead lodged in its eye and, a, and a, I don't know, a, a sword with I belong to Harold buried beside him, that would be amazing. But sadly, so far, that hasn't happened. No. Well, it's it's a massive Game of Thrones story where there's a lot of uh, toing and froing and competing interests and battles on various fronts, both figurative and physical. But turning now to Diana, who's been listening to this epic story told by Mark, you are English Heritage's event manager. How amazed are you at the remarkable story told by Mark about this rise and fall of Harold Godwinson, King Harold? My amazement never ceases. I think the more and more I learn about that period in history, the more I realise the gravitas of the event of reenacting kind of culmination of that each year and just how kind of important that is. Yes. That history back to life each year. Absolutely. And as we've gone into quite a lot of detail, there's uh, multiple sources to consider. So it's quite hard to actually concentrate on one particular story to tell. But how is English Heritage planning to mark the Battle of Hastings this year? Obviously, we know there's going to be a winner and a loser, and that doesn't change. But uh, what, what else can you tell us? Well, yeah, the inevitability of the outcome, I suppose, is something that in this case, everybody accepts. And that, you know, that's fine. And that's what we want to, that's what people want to see. Um, in terms of reenacting the battle with all of the input from so many reenactors, performers, horses, each year. So we are doing that again. And we were able to do it last year, which was fantastic in October last year. And again, we're bringing back as many Norman and Saxon reenactors as we possibly can, as always. And they will be building their authentic encampments on the battlefield, either side of the great arena where the action takes place. In addition, though, we really want to kind of bring to life not just those moments of action, but also about the life of people in that time. So as well as the handcrafts, the weapon maintenance, uh, some of the kind of authentic pets that you'll find in the encampment, we also have music, hands-on fun activities for children and adults, why not? So that they can have a bit of fun, have that kind of, you know, run around, run off some steam, but hopefully learn something in the process. And really the aim is to make a mark on people's experience when they come to site on these event days. So they go away really thinking about the history, thinking about the sites where the history happened and and kind of wanting to engage with it in future. Hopefully we're planting the seeds of lifelong love with history for people. So families and visitors can interact with the actors, shall we say, before the battle takes place? They can. And, and these, can these actors will be in character? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. All day, fully in character. So we also have a play that kind of plays out the action of the year of 1066, um, the year of Three Kings, so that we can really give that kind of exposition so people kind of understand a bit more about the background, not to the depth of that which Mark's just explained, but certainly giving people a sense of kind of why did this happen? How did this come to be in an entertaining way? as well as other things, you know, there's it's a full day of activity, have a go archery, 
visiting the Hawks Muse where we've got those early medieval falcons and yeah, so much more. And horses as well, I suppose, because we've got the Normans with their cavalry. So you must have a number of horses involved as well. We do. We have between 20, 25, maybe 30 horses who run as the Norman cavalry, which is a big part of the of the main reenactment. But they also do a cavalry of 1066 demonstration the mid part of the day to really show and explain what the Norman cavalry involved, um, what the techniques were, what the kit looked like, how that was used and all that kind of really interesting stuff that kind of gives that context. So when they see it three hours later in the main battle, they can understand a bit more about what's going on. And it really adds the drama having the horses in the main battle and really gives a sense of kind of what it might have been like. It's a sort of small snatch of what it may have been like back in 1066. Mm. It's obviously a scaled down version of the original. You've got (laughs) up to 30 horses with riders, obviously. So so how many other, shall we say, battlefield employees or or contractors (laughs) are there taking part? Yes. So it does depend. It does differ year to year. So we get a lot of interest from people wanting to take part when we have the big anniversary years. So in 2006, we had 2000 reenactors across the site all camping, all in the field during the battle, which was an incredible sight. It was a bit before my time, I have to say. But in 2016, which was an event I was responsible for, we had a thousand, which at that time was the largest we'd had in those ten year, intervening 10 years. And people came from all over the world. We had people from Australia, Canada, Germany. It was absolutely incredible, the engagement and the passion from so many people wanting to be involved and be a part of the, the kind of what, you know, it was a momentous anniversary, 950 years since the battle. But on a kind of a non-anniversary year, it's anything between 400 and 600. That's still a lot. There's a lot of people to host, a lot of people to camp, a lot of people to facilitate. And it does look epic in the field. Yes, I can imagine. Oh, it's really exciting. I'm getting really excited already. I don't know about you, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been to, I've been down to the reenactment lots of times. It's a very exciting day out. I first went, it makes me think I must be a couple of years older than, um, than Diana, <laughs> because I first went in 1995, I'm just remembering, oh. when I was, I took a group of, of, of fellow students down there in a coach. But I think that was an epic year. It's certainly, you know, no year does English Heritage say, oh, it's a, it's a very small one this year. But they made great play at the time of like, they had a lot of people, a lot of reenactors, a lot of horse, you know. And I've been there so lots of times subsequently with my children now who loved back in the day having their foam swords and foam helmets. And it's just amazing if you're a kid to see that many people and that much noise and hubbub. But my real top tip is if you're going there without children and you fancy a pint in one of Battle's many fine pubs at the end of the day, get in before the reenactors get off the field because it comes quite raw. <laughs> and they're all still dressed in mail and nursing little nicks and scrapes and things. And you don't want to spill any of those guys' pints. So um, absolutely, yeah, get, get your round in early. Yeah. yeah, I would totally agree with that. They love to go into town, still in kits, still in their mail tabards, all the lot. And uh, yeah, it's a great, it's a very um, atmospheric evening in town that night. <laughs> I bet it's a great scene, I'm sure. So, Diana, how do you cast all these characters in the battle? I mean, do we have the same William, the same Harold as each year? How does it work? We try and keep continuity where we can, but equally, those are the starring roles. So we like to share it out between willing people. We tend to speak to our French reenactment contingent to source our William, of course. We strive for as much authenticity as possible. We have a Breton group who come and and provide the William very often. And then for Harold, it's very much about who can ride, who's got the right presence, who can take direction, because of course, this is very much a choreographed performance. But we very often use the same chap, Kendall, who's fantastic. And uh, yeah, lives up to it every time. Of course, we want to make sure we kind of make people look as authentic as possible as well. So one year we had a ginger fellow playing William and uh, he went full method and, and dyed his hair black, which we really appreciated. <laughs> That's brilliant. So what can a first time visitor expect to experience when they attend? Because it sounds like you've got loads planned. It, it's a real full day. It's several hours of interesting things to see and do. Yeah, well, what I'd say is take your time, look at the timetable, have a think about um, what 
parts of the timetable you want to make sure you see and then you'll have lots of filler time around those those points so you can explore the authentic um, trader row so that's the village of um, historic traders selling all sorts of things from things to taste and drink to kit to kind of armor up your own authentic kind of repertoire of kit little bags weapons all that kind of stuff and then have it taken the site, taken the kind of scale of the living history, go and explore, speak to the real actors, learn about how they do what they do, and then go up into the main site, into the Abbey Ruins, have a go at some have-a-go archery, run around with a foam sword, watch the play that will tell you all about that year of 1066, listen to some music, meet the falcons and the other birds of prey, and uh, of course, get yourself a lovely cup of tea or a pint of ale as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, in trying to put all this on and with potentially different personnel and some consistency throughout the years, there's going to be a need for a rehearsal, isn't there? So when does that take place? Well, that's an interesting question because actually there isn't really time within setup, within people's arrivals to actually do a full rehearsal, as it were, with all of the people. So how we manage it is we have battle commanders. So what we do is, as the event manager, I will brief the battle commanders at the start of the day. They will then brief all of their respective infantry. And so it's fed down, the information is fed down through the ranks in a sort of military style fashion. And then any elements that do need rehearsal, you know, from health and safety testing in the arena to check the wind speeds, how arrows are going to fly. We make time for that on the Saturday morning before we open to the public and make sure we sign everything off. So we really have to use the time and the resources that we have at our fingertips within the kind of structure of, of the event. And it works very well. You know, if anybody's new to the event and hasn't done it before, I'm aware of them and I'll have a specific briefing for them. Otherwise, everyone is well, well schooled in in how to do what they do. And um, it's a really great, fantastic team effort. Mm. It sounds like you're almost like a film director. It's an element of that. There is an element of that. Certainly when the inventory is on the field, we do have to have communication out onto the field. So it's almost live directed. So the very subtle little radio that's planted inside a couple of people's helmets so we can direct them on which direction to take the Conroys. And yeah, it takes a lot of kind of experience to make sure that that's all done correctly each year. And then I have a really brilliant team who know exactly how to do it. And there's a commentator, isn't there as well? Yeah, we have a commentator who does a fantastic job of commentating the action, explaining exactly what's going on, as well as there is a, a recorded score as well, which really helps oh, wow. give the drama. Yeah, uh, really tells the tale and gives that kind of, you know, what's the emotional story of what's going on on the field as well as what you see. Gosh, uh, it's literally like going to a film, but it's it's live action. And exactly. it's almost like there's an orchestra coming out of these speakers telling Absolutely. you what's happening. It musically. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, as well as some pieces from William himself and, and Edith Swanneck, what they're saying, what they're thinking at this time. So it, it really kind of brings it to life and, and, and gives it that, yeah, that filmic quality. What a show. So what's the best thing about running the event for you? Well, it is my favourite event. And I'm not, not just saying that. <laughs> it is the biggest event that English Heritage runs each year. So by its very nature, it's it's got a huge amount of kind of scale and atmosphere. I think for me, it's that atmosphere. It just feels so exciting. The amount of people involved all coming together to make this thing happen each year. It really gives you a buzz. And each year, each event in itself is a piece of history. They, you know, each reenactment goes down, you know, as you go through the years as, as a little piece of history. So it's kind of making history from bringing history to life, which is a really it's a wonderful thing to do. Interesting. Any particular challenges in running this? Well, I would say it's always the same. It's weather and ground conditions. Any greenfield event, as anyone that works in that area will know, or anyone that goes to these events will know, you know, it's not just put your wellies on. This is a very important site in that sense, because it is a greenfield, it's a fragile site. So we have to be extremely careful with every element of the event, the infrastructure. And if the weather is not on our side, it becomes a very big challenge to make sure that we protect the ground, protect visitors' safety, and make sure the event goes ahead as far as possible. Yes. But of course, Harold's story, and he's the key part of the reason we've done this podcast, his story ends 
with death in battle. How has history remembered Harold in the immediate aftermath of the battle, subsequent centuries and today, Mark? Well, in general terms, after the conquest, it's negative. Certainly in chronicles written in Normandy or written in post-conquest England, Harold is always portrayed as a usurper, uh, which, you know, there is some justification to portraying him in that way because he did take the crown without any blood right to the throne, but he was, you know, the popular candidate. But certainly in Norman eyes, he was the villain of the piece. And I think that persists for a long time. But, of course, he's he becomes this kind of certainly in the 18th, particularly in the 19th century. Harold is the great hero of the piece because he is resisting foreign invasion, resisting tyranny. And um, he gets written up almost as the model Englishman because historians of more recent centuries are taking on trust. The source I kept harping on about, the life of King Edward, which, as I say, is a tract in praise of the Godwin family, Godwin himself in particular, and even more so Harold Godwin's son. So the pendulum has swung both ways across the centuries. He's gone from villain to hero in that thousand years. And I think nowadays it's, I'd say, a bit of both. I mean, no one would call him a villain. And he has heroic qualities. I mean, his defence of England in 1066 is indeed heroic. I think where the sort of the, you have to kind of put a pin in the praise to say the relentless rise of Harold and his family was due to kind of the qualities you would associate with powerful men seizing power for themselves, you know, that they are ruthless and ambitious and didn't care who they flattened to kind of, you know, get their ultimate prize. So, um, yes, he's certainly no coward. He's certainly a man who uh, enjoyed success in battle, certainly a charismatic man who could attract others to his banner, but perhaps not the superhero, the flawless individual portrayed in the source that was commissioned by his own sister. But, you know, at the the same time, the relentless rise of the Godwinsons in the previous half century up to 1066 is the story of a family on the make desperate to seize power. And it's not a story that is imbued with any kind of inherent nobility. The story they tell posterity is they rose because of their virtue. They rose because of their innate self-worth. And I'm always very sceptical of kind of people telling me this person, you know, rose to the top just because they were so damn brilliant. It's like, well, there are probably other reasons besides. Well, if it starts off with Danish collaboration, then... Well, it does, as I say. It starts off... The reason that they are powerful in 1066 is because they had been the arch collaborators with the previous invasion half a century earlier. That doesn't mean that they don't have noble qualities in themselves, but that's the story of the Godwinsons. Mm. Very, very interesting. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to talk us through those events of 1066, and particularly for you, Mark, the story of Harold. Just to sort of wrap things up, I think I would say thank you, Mark, for bringing history to life, and to Diana, also bringing history to life. So uh, both, thank you for a historic podcast, I suppose, and have a great historic day and put on a great show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. My pleasure too. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be looking at the story of one of America's original stars of the big screen, Charlie Chaplin, and how he came to be commemorated by a blue plaque in London. He's had a huge impact on whole generations of comedians since. It sort of cut a path to um, Hollywood for many others. So he was influential in that sense too. Thanks for listening. See you next time.